1: Offerings to the oracle at Delphi, to the queue for the fortune-teller at a circus, people have always paid good money for a glimpse of what the future might hold. But many of today's top future gazers are obsessed with the past. Take the American presidential election. Statistical modelers believe, based on past data, that the incumbent benefits from a thriving economy, that opinion polls can suggest a likely victor. And that the polls can go wrong based on how much they've aired in the past. But what happens when historical examples don't reveal so much about the future? In the face of electoral upsets and viral black swans, where should pollsters and prognosticators look? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, should forecasting break free from history? My guest is Philip Tetlock, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His work seeks to understand and perfect the science of prediction. He's co-founder of the Good Judgment Project, the winner of a four-year US intelligence agency competition to hone the cutting edge of geopolitical forecasting. His team of super forecasters now competes with professional pollsters and artificial intelligence to predict what will happen in high stakes, real world events, from finding a COVID 19 vaccine to the US presidential election. Philip Tetlock, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, thank you. Let's focus first on the present and the great challenge, of course, this year has been the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, there's an example of an event that some experts had predicted for some time, but most governments weren't ready for it. Do super forecasters have a good track record on seeing it coming?
0: A little bit better, I think, than average. I think the people who are way ahead of the curve were, well, Bill Gates was way ahead of the curve in 2015. He in turn was drawing on microbiologists and epidemiologists who had been writing 10, 15 years before that. It was as though they were saying to us, look, you're rolling the dice each year. And each year, there is low probability of something devastatingly bad happening. Let's say it's 2%, 3 4%. And you're going to be lucky many years over and over. Hmm. Finally, we got unlucky in 2020. So you had a chronic low probability risk, daring fate, as it were. And then there were these ominous signs in the fall and the early winter of 2019. The question is, how rapidly did we update? You know, say, well, it's no longer the 2% probability. We moved up to 4 or move it up to 8 or move. Up to 16. And I think the value of forecasting tournaments is in helping you, A, and monitor these chronic risks, and B, in updating in a timely way when these low chronic risks are starting to spike upward. Initially, very slowly. I mean, if I've been saying to you for the last 15 years, I think there's a 1% or 2% or 3% risk, and it doesn't happen, yes. doesn't happen, you will probably have tuned me out 10 or 15 years ago, right? <laughs>
1: Oh, I like to think we have still left you on the show with that one, Professor. But you know, as you say, I think there would have been a bit of eye rolling, and gosh, wasn't he alarmist? <laughs> I, I, I think that would freely speaking have been my reaction. But is it possible to make meaningful probability predictions around events that are unique or so rare, like a pandemic, and where the outcomes so dependent on mass public behaviour and the rate at which it develops or doesn't develop? It's simply changing all the time depending on what people do and what they stop doing.
0: I think there's a wonderful conversation to be had around that subject. It's going to sound very abstruse, but it's it's essentially a philosophy of statistics debate. What are the limits of the probability calculus? How far can it be extended into real-world events? Uh, We know it can be applied to casinos, and we're, we're pretty confident it can be applied to elections and even to sporting events, bookies, odds. Uh, but what about the Syrian civil war? What about what China's going to do in Hong Kong? Those sorts of things, which which we often characterize as one-offs, you generis, generous, beyond probability estimation. There's an interesting book that some people in the UK wrote. I'm sure you're familiar with them, Irvin King and John Kay, Radical Uncertainty. Yes, of course. You know, they're, they're quite skeptical of the work we do. They think we we're trying to extend the probability calculus into domains where it really is not extendable. I think the right starting point for this conversation is that nobody really knows where the boundaries are. We just don't know.
1: So would you argue that governments should be more proactive in recruiting teams of forecasters and also keeping them around, keeping them on their books? It would
0: suggest that, that, that there is a value to a government uh, or any large organization in developing sets of early warning and early opportunity indicators and monitoring how the probabilities of those indicators fluctuate over time, and if it's a particularly high consequence event, like like the risk of um, war in the Taiwan Straits or uh, of pandemic or Russian intervention in Belarus, if it's considered to be a high impact event for your organization, you should factor it into your policy. Well,
1: someone who is a great admirer of yours is British Prime Minister's chief advisor and election strategist, Dominic. Cummings. How do you feel uh, about that association? He's, uh, as we say in Britain, a bit of a Marmite character. He has some great fans and and many great detractors. Uh, Did it warm your heart to hear that he thought we needed more super forecasters in your mould and he thought rather less civil servants and self-styled experts from other spheres?
0: What an interesting question. Um, So, We don't have any ideological litmus test for super forecasters, and I understand that there was one but politically controversial super forecaster who caused a bit of a stir in the UK earlier this year.
1: Yes, he's the one. He, he actually lost his job, which, which of course led to the <laughs> led to the inevitable jokes, which I'm sure you've heard too many times to find them remotely funny about not predicting his own demise. But I, I suppose that, that is you're humouring me well, i sure you've said uh, it so often. But Dominic Cummings was quite interesting because he really went out there and said, "I think we need more super forecasters and less of other kinds of people who." effect to be able to tell us what will happen next around the world. And therefore, I wondered if you enjoyed that association.
0: I I think it's a good thing on balance when political leaders, whether they're on the left or the right, Labour, Tory, Democrat, Republican, what what have you, when they adopt a very pragmatic, evidence-oriented view toward the world. And forecasting tournaments and the selection of super forecasters is about as ideologically and value neutral as I think social science is capable of becoming. So I welcome the attention of democratic leaders in this work.
1: Has he reached out to you at all to uh, advise the British government?
0: No, I've never talked with Dominic Cummings and I have never consulted with the UK government.
1: Let's look at an example. It is actually from the UK, but there are a number perhaps of sort of avatars around the world in the last few years where super forecasters have not got it right. High profile one would be Brexit in the UK. Good judgment put the odds of a leave victory at only 25%. It sounds as if super forecasters made the same mistake that others who didn't want Brexit to happen made and simply didn't factor in that many people were intending to, quietly or otherwise to vote to leave the European Union?
0: That's the source of concern I have about super forecasting, that it does tend to attract – and I claim to be an expert on UK politics – but my sense is that educated professionals in London and Cambridge and Oxford and so forth voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU. Now, insofar as super forecasters are more likely to be drawn from that stratum of society, you would expect an ideological bias among super forecasters in that direction. Hence, they would be more at risk of being blindsided on something like
1: Brexit. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I wondered if you thought that was a sort of ideological skew in the group. So you kind of anticipated my question, really, on that. You no, know, it's
0: a great question. It's a deep question. It's a source of real concern to me. I think there's a real value in having cognitive and ideological diversity, a wide range of mental models uh, within the superforecaster population. One of our best algorithms, for example, gives more weight when people who normally disagree, agree. And I think one of the reasons why super forecasting work might, might appeal to someone like Dominic Cummings, who was a man I do not know, by the way, but I'm just guessing, is that if the situation in the UK is similar to the situation in the US, the civil service elite is more likely to lean a little bit to the left. So there may be more of an adversarial relationship between conservative politicians and elite civil service than it would be between, say, center-left politicians and elite civil service. If that's the case, then you might expect the Conservative politicians look for more unconventional sources of best advice.
1: The Super Forecasters approach may be making its mark in UK politics, but we couldn't have a master of the trade with us without asking the big question looming over the remainder of 2020. Who is going to win the US presidential election?
0: There's no shortage of explicit probability estimates in the United States about how the presidential election is going to break. I think the probabilities range uh, from maybe highest chances I've seen people giving Trump are 50-50. And I think they range from 50-50 to about an 85-90% likelihood of Biden. Uh, I think Nate Silver, who's one of the best poll aggregators, and actually I think did a, did a good job in 2016, is hovering around 70%, which is almost exactly where he was in 2016.
1: But a lot of people feel that 2016 was an example where a lot of prognostication was off. I and mean, we had uh, predictions of a Hillary Clinton win anywhere between 70% to, into the, the 90s. One thing that, that makes me wonder is when you start to come up with these numbers, when we put sort of numerology on these events, does that mislead us? Because frankly, I'm often not sure really what the difference is or how to understand the difference between a 70% and a 99% likelihood or a nine to one chance that Biden will be president as opposed to a one in 10 chance that Trump will be. Am I right in being a bit suspicious? And i analytical journalist by background, so that I declare my bias there. I mean, do these numbers make a lot of sense? Um,
0: sometimes. They do. Uh, some, sometimes uh, there are exercises in pseudo-precision. I mean, some people would prefer, I suppose, to get a summary statement that said, well, I think it's moderately likely that Joe Biden is going to win. And then you ask readers, what did TEDlock mean by moderately likely? And you'll find that they'll say anything between about 55% and about 90%, which is quite a wide range. I think the probability is probably in the 65 to 75% range right now of a Biden victory. Yeah, it's more informative to hear 65 to 75%, is not it, than moderately likely.
1: Okay, so how surprised would you be, choosing your own words, of course, if... Joe Biden didn't win. Moderately. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to say 30 to 35 well, well, percent. to su- skewer me on my own that, logic.
0: <laughs> well, how, 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 how surprised will I be if we're flipping a coin and I, and I know it has a bias toward landing heads. It has a 75, 25 bias toward heads and it lands tails. How, how surprised am I? Moderately, I
1: think. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, fair fair enough. This year, we published the first ever presidential election model at The Economist, and it consciously tries to compensate for the the mistakes of 2016, uh, the underestimation of Republican votes in the Midwest not factoring in enough uncertainty and volatility, or the shifting weight of something like economic performance in the way that uh, people made their calculations. But how much faith would you place in a model that hasn't made real world predictions before?
0: Presidential elections and US elections in general have been subject to pretty intensive modeling efforts for decades. Uh, Now, I agree that there's something quite unusual about Trump and the unusual stability of his support over time. It's interesting to ask. Nate Silver was around 70% in 2016, and I think some Princeton researchers are up around 95% on a Hillary victory. If Nate Silver, I think, had been working in normal mode, I think he would have been closer to 95% as well in 2016. But there were some things that caused him to be more cautious. And one of the things that caused him to be more cautious is, you know, he's worried that there might be some systematic underreporting of Trump support because it's less socially desirable. He was also worried about correlated measurement error. And the combination, I think, caused him to throttle back from 90 percent down to about 70 percent. You know, he didn't go all the way down to 50 or Call a Trump victory by any means, but he throttled back. If there is measurement error, for example, in Wisconsin, there's likely to be measurement error in Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania. So th- these were, of course, states that played a pivotal role.
1: Okay, but where would that leave? us? So if you look to our own, our modeling maestro, Elliot Morris, has had some, some pretty fierce Twitter scuffles with Nate Silver recently. And Elliot's argument is that modern elections are fundamentally different from historical ones. And that pollsters may be being too guided by historical precedent. He thinks that, for instance, is the case when it comes to looking at the relationship between economic growth and election outcomes. Hasn't he got a point? Uh, he may. <laughs> we need <laughs> to have you, know, you back have after election I'm, day, don't we really, <laughs> President?
0: Unprecedented things do, do sometimes happen. I'm not familiar with the exchanges he's having with... Uh,
1: Oh, I, I can recommend it. Um, it's a very good Twitter bus stop. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you want to see <laughs> modelers go mano to mano, then that's definitely the place to look. But I think to sort of put you know put it in a bit of a, a crude nutshell, that was one of the arguments was really how you assess that relationship between economic growth and election outcomes, and you can see a nice pattern from the 1880s to the modern day. But does it still hold true in a time like the, the one we're in? And of course, you have COVID and the way that people interpret economic outlooks, very much through a different prism to the one you would have had even in 2016, let alone going further back. Right. The
0: problem I've always had with the polymetric modelling of presidential elections is that there are so many independent variables and, and not enough dependent variables. Uh, there, are, there, are, so, there are so many economic variables, just on the macroeconomic side, so many combinations of them. So Trump is at a disadvantage when it comes to unemployment. He's at an advantage when it comes to the economic rebound from COVID.
1: Right. But what about trying to account for that kind of volatility and how you weigh that up as against what you might think are the sort of closer certainties of living in more polarized times That one, not many advantages to it in many ways, but that, that you feel that you've got people in sort of columns of votes. How do super forecasters take stock of that? It's like that tension between these two propositions.
0: I think the election competitions are actually in some way closer to sporting events. It's quite a restricted range of outcomes. There's an old saying that U.S. politics is played between the 40-yard lines on a U.S. football field. <laughs> Neither party ever is going to fall below 40%. <laughs> you know, the ultimate landslide would be 60%. We know that things don't change very much after Labor Day. Now, is it possible they will, that someone's going to attempt to assassinate Trump and that's going to cause a sympathy in his direction? Or there are a lot of things that could happen that would throw that off. But the best bet is that we're moving toward a situation where Biden is going to win the popular vote by a margin probably quite similar to the one Hillary won it by, in states very similar to the ones that Hillary won, and that Trump may or may not be able to compensate for that by, by, by squeezing through the electoral college.
1: And if I had to press you on what the upshot of this kind of argument – and as you say, we can come back to it after the election and then the next argument will have started about what what we're predicting right or or not – should we be democratising the forecast – Playing down the statistical models, playing down the experts, tied to historical data. What about just crowdsourcing everything? How about that?
0: In a sense, that's what we do. We had several thousand amateurs working in those forecasting tournaments, and they were outperforming professional intelligence analysts in many years. So at some level, we've been there and done that. You could say super forecasting, in a sense, is a move back toward elitism, right?
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And I wondered if that is is that that is part of the danger, isn't it? There are
0: more egalitarian and less egalitarian approaches to forecasting. And there are approaches to forecasting that put more emphasis on historical precedent and base race. And there are approaches to forecasting that put more emphasis on it's different this time. It's special now. These are essentially philosophical differences and uh, I think we benefit from having a diversity of perspectives. Though I don't think super forecasters are perfect by any means. Are they on the wrong side of maybe sometimes? Yes. Is Nate Silver on the wrong side of maybe sometimes? Yes. Um, even the economist is on the wrong side of maybe sometimes. It happens.
1: Apparently that has been known, known to happen. We do try to own up to it, which I think is probably <laughs> the best that, that you can do Then and, and learn from it.
0: Absolutely. It is an underappreciated virtue.
1: Yes. Uh, and you've been very candid about where you think the limits of super forecasting lie. But if the professional trade, whatever you like to call it, said, I don't know, and talked about fallibility a lot, it, it would be letting down its own super brand, wouldn't it?
0: The term super carries a lot of connotations that I think are somewhat unfortunate. People take it to be promising a degree of, of prescience that I don't think it's possible to achieve in a world that is as noisy as the current world is. Super forecasting was useful as a motivational tool for identifying and energising a lot of human talent to work on problems the intelligence community cared about for a sustained period of time for very little money.
1: (laughs) If I said to you, look, the world wasn't ready for COVID-19, where should forecasters focus attention now to spot and to prepare for the next so-called black swan? Where would you direct your attention?
0: Well, black swans are, by definition, unknowable. So I I guess we're really talking about swans of varying degrees of greyness, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, murky grey
0: ones. (laughs) Dark grey, dark grey, light grey, in in, in between. So the pandemic, for example, is interesting because it was in a black swan. Well, if you were listening to the microbiologists, or Bill Gates, it would say it was a slightly grey swan. How are we going to be blindsided next? Is it going to be a cyber hacking catastrophe? Is mm. it going to be a solar storm? Is it going? <laughs> what, what, what will, what will bedevil us? We've begun to take an interest now in in existential risk, which is a term of art, I guess. Categories of, of events that are threats to human survival, extinction level. I think of it as, as extreme black swans, but even. Even the extreme black swans are really grayish when you talk to the subject matter experts, right? We're talking about comets and asteroids and solar storms and gamma rays coming from neutron stars, black holes colliding and so forth. There are many things both on our planet and outside our planet that have the potential to do that. So should we be devoting substantially more resources to continuously monitoring how the risk of these various things is fluctuating? I mean, What proportion of GDP should we be devoting to asteroid deflection? What percentage of GDP should we be devoting to preparing for the next pandemic? These are classic uh, resource allocation decisions that have to be responsive to uncertainty and magnitude estimates. Right.
1: And does it change your life on a daily basis? Do you find yourself... When you make those calculations, we have to make about our family lives or our own economic well being, or just the chances we take. Do you submit it to a bit of super forecasting?
0: Well, I can tell you that my son imposes a super forecaster discipline on me. He's a professor of finance. And he's made it very clear to me that he doesn't want me to try to be a stock picker, and that I should be investing in low transaction cost uh, index funds. So
1: that That's a typical vote of confidence from your own offspring, isn't it?
0: <laughs> right. Well, he knows that I'm tempted sometimes. I, he knows what some of my weaknesses. So he knows that I'm occasionally prone to overconfidence and hunches and thinking, ah, now, now's the time to buy Apple. Ah, now's the time to do this or that
1: that's somewhere the forecasters probably do have the edge <laughs> phil tetlock thank you very much for joining us
0: oh it's was delightful
1: and we'd love to know how you see the future should governments pay less attention to so-called experts and seek the advice of open-minded generalists where might the next black or gray swan be lurking and where in your daily life could you use a dose of that super forecasting magic Write to us, radio at or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And to explore our election model and how it was built, go to economist.com slash US2020 forecast. As election day approaches, you can also follow our coverage by subscribing at economist.com slash podcast offer. Well worth it. The link is in the show notes. We can't guarantee to see the future, but we can help you on the way. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this is The Economist.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery-soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.